I want to look this evening at a very unique people in the Bible, the prophet. I want to look at the role of the prophet in the Bible, and I don't want to talk about them in so much theological or academic terms, because if we do that, we can easily miss the strangeness, the awkwardness, the full-color beauty of the biblical prophet. If you grew up in the church and have had uh, heard stories from the lives of prophets such as Jeremiah or Isaiah or Elijah all your life, then they, the prophet has, might have become all too familiar to you. You might think, oh yeah, they're just like a good church leader or maybe a pastor who spoke God's word to God's people. While that is true, it's really very two-dimensional view. It's a really very monochrome view of the prophet. A prophet was a very unique person in the Bible. <clears throat> there wasn't many of them, comparatively speaking, to priests and other religious leaders. And partly because they were in relatively short supply, but mostly because they were so countercultural, when a prophet showed up in town, people got nervous. One of the reasons why they made people so nervous was because they usually didn't care a stitch what people thought about them. They marched to a different drumbeat. A good prophet couldn't be manipulated or bribed. A good prophet didn't let peer pressure, wealth, power, or other influences sway him. And that made people uneasy. They lived for an audience of one, and that one was God. Prophets could hear things everybody else couldn't hear. They could see things everybody else couldn't see. And this made them, well, different than everybody else. Another thing that made people uneasy is that you can never guess what the prophet was up to when they came to visit you. Were they going to bring good news or bad news? Were they going to foretell God's blessing or God's judgment? Tonight we're going to look at a classic example of the work of the prophet as we peer into a snapshot from the life of the, prophet of the prophet Elijah. The full story can be found in 1 Kings chapters 16 through 19. There's no way I'm going to read all four of those chapters. But uh, if you open your Bibles to um, page 348, I'll be pulling out snippets from se several of those chapters. And as we walk through the events of 1 Kings, I want you to think about what the attitudes, motivation, and disposition of Elijah is. And I'm going to ask you to do this even though it's nearly impossible. I want you to try to imagine what it feels like to be Elijah as he goes about his business in, in these events. Let's start with the beginning, the background. I want to read for you uh, 1 Kings 16, verses 29 through 34. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. So Ahab becomes king of Israel. Remember, Israel, God's people. We've been working through the redemptive history in the Bible. God's people. Ahab's king of God's people. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. 
He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Ahab was a super bad guy. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. He did more to provoke God than any before him. He did whatever he, he, he wanted. He was a harsh dictator. Other parts of the Bible tell us that. If he wanted something, he would just take it. If he wanted someone's land, he would just take it. So not only was he a bad guy, but he was also... Um, he, he did a lot of evil. He, he did all he could to divert the worship of God and, and the obedience of God's people away from God towards pagan false gods. He set up temples to Baal. He set up worshiping sites um, f- for Asherah and just did really bad things. So he wasn't a nice guy. He swayed people away from God, but probably the crowning uh, jewel on his evilness is he, ma- he married Jezebel, and she was a real Jezebel. She made Ahab look like a nice guy. She was as bad as they come. Think of Cruella de Vil, way worse. And she sort of wore the pants in the family and did what Ahab, uh, and, and, and made Ahab do whatever she wanted. Enter pro- the prophet Elijah, okay? This is the background. This is the man uh, he's, Elijah's going to visit, Ahab. One of the most wicked guys in, in, in the Bible. Very powerful, full of authority. And this is what Elijah does. Look at uh, chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, not humbly, not excuse me, sir, I beg your pardon. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kerith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Man, I would love life if I got bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, but that's, we'll get to that later. So Elijah essentially walks right into Ahab's court and says gonna, there's going to be no more rain. There's not even going to be any dew in the morning. I don't know if you can fathom how bad this would be and how shaky you would be if you were delivering this message to Ahab. We can only try to compare. But it'd be like you know, me going up to one of you guys and saying, you're going to lose your job tomorrow and you won't be able to find one for three years. And all your friends, they're going to desert you. What would you do if I said that? You'd either laugh at me or, or want to swing a punch at me. Ahab would want to do the latter. In fact, the rest of the story tells us that Ahab... Um, Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. 
Ahab um, facing Elijah. Elijah knows he's in a, a very precarious spot, but God doesn't leave him hanging. God has his back. God says, go hide down by the brook, and I'll take care of you. You're going to be, I'll make sure you're okay. I'll protect you. Three years later, if we can fast forward a bit to chapter 18, let's look at verses 1 through 5. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And I'm going to stop there. And if you would continue reading, you would see that the, the famine was so severe that he sent, um, Ahab would send scouts all around looking for patches of grass so that they could feed their horses and cattle. Because there was none to be found. With no rain, no dew, everything dried up. And the drought caused the famine. And Ahab and Jezebel became so furious, they sent um, ambassadors to every country, every region around Samaria, looking for Elijah, looking to kill Elijah. And when they went to the country, they said, is Elijah, or the region, is Elijah hiding here? And they would say, no. Then they would make him swear that he wasn't hiding there. And if he was hiding there, that they would turn him in. They were after him. And here God's saying, go present yourself to Ahab. Three years of drought. Let's look again at chapter 18, verses 16 to 21. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Listen to what the prophet says. I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. Them fighting words. You have abandoned the Lord's command and followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, people of Israel, God's people, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Follow him. And the people said nothing. And so Elijah sets up the showdown. And he says to, the, to Ahab, have the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, now that all together that's 850, build an altar. And on the altar set some wood. And on the wood set a bowl. And Cut it up, assemble it as a sacrifice, but don't light the fire. And then get a bowl for me, and I'll do the same. I'll build an altar, I'll put wood on it, and I'll put the bowl on it. But you guys go first, okay? And so they build up 
the uh, altar, they put wood on it, they put the bull on it, and then they start to seek out Baal. And they sing and they dance and they chant all 850 prophet and prophetesses. And nothing happens. And this is pretty great. The Bible says in verse uh, 26, Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Okay, that's about four hours of, uh, of beseeching Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No, no one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. This is great. I can't believe this is in the Bible. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as they were was their custom until their blood flowed. That's how they provoked their little G-God. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah the prophet said, Come here to me, people. And at the time of the evening sacrifice, he gathered 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he built and really rebuilt the altar because Ahab had knocked down the original altar, rebuilt the altar of the Lord. And he put wood on it and he placed the bull they had selected on it. But before he did anything else, he dug a trench around the uh, altar. And the Bible says that the trench held about seven gallons of water. And then before he called on the Lord, he said to the servants, go get four pitchers of water and dump it on the bowl. And so they took four pitchers and dumped it on, and they said, do it again. And they took four more pitchers of water and dumped it on, and he said, do it again. And he took four more pitchers of water and dumped it on until the, the bowl was completely covered with water, the wood was completely covered with water, the stones were completely covered, and the trough was full. And then... He cried out to God. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. See the purpose of all this? You are turning their hearts back again, God of grace. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's an amazing, amazing event. And then Elijah, this is a little gruesome part, he rounds up all the prophets of Baal and has them put to death and has the people recommit themselves to serving the Lord. And he goes to Ahab and he says, go eat and drink for there's a sound of heavy rain and the drought is over and the rain falls. 
There's much more to this story. It, it goes on incredibly. Don't read it while I'm finishing the sermon up, okay? What do we learn from that? What can we learn from this encounter with the prophets? See, the thing about prophets, they experience like few other people in their day, God's divine presence within them. Think about that for a second. They are hyper aware of the presence of God, the creator of the world around them, the God who hung the stars, the moon, and the sun, the God who set the planets in orbit, the, the God who set the planet in orbit is speaking to them, and they have his presence with them, within them. It's this fact that causes them to march to a different drumbeat, God's drumbeat. Being commissioned to action by God himself would put a healthy dose of the fear of God in you, wouldn't it? It would cause you to do what needs to be done despite making people unhappy or mad at you or disappointed. You will risk life and limb because, one, you know God is guiding you, but two, you know God is in control and he will take care of you. It caused the prophet to surrender, surrender their plans for life, their objectives, actions to what God has for them. It had caused them to surrender their life's agenda to God's agenda. So how did this all help us out? How does it help us live as followers of Christ? Well, I really struggled with this point until I led uh, our Tuesday um, afternoon Bible study, our senior Bible study over in the Fellowship Hall, and we were looking at uh, Pentecost. Not long after Jesus' death and resurrection, in fact, 50 days later, and we'll celebrate this soon in the church calendar, Pentecost came. And with Pentecost, God's Spirit came and settled upon the early Christians, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they prophesied. If you remember, they, um, they recounted the prophecy of Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your monk, young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. When Pentecost hit, the Holy Spirit was given to the church. He was, it was given to Christians. Not temporarily, but permanently. If we are in Christ, we have God's spirit within us. That is something incredibly unique. When Pentecost hit, the redemptive history made a huge transition. God temporarily would send his spirit upon kings or priests or prophets. But it was never long term. It was never permanent. When Jesus died and rose again, he not only broke the chains of sin and death, but he restored our connection with God. And God sent his spirit to live in us. 
And so now, as Christians, we are more like the Old Testament prophet than ever. God's Spirit is within us. In that way, we are much, very much like Elijah. With the giving of the Holy Spirit, followers of Jesus has God's presence within them. Remember Jeremiah, the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, there'll come a day when I'll make a new covenant. And I'll, you'll no longer have to teach the law to one another because I'll write it on your hearts and in your minds. That comes fulfilled at Pentecost. This should cause us to have a similar lifestyle, a similar approach as the Old Testament prophets. There's three ways the Old Testament prophets lived that, is, that beckons us to follow. First is they lived for an audience of one. I want to reread the intro um, that I gave about the Old Testament prophets for a second. And instead of the word um, prophet, I want you to think Christian. I want you to think yourself. I want you to think you and I. One of the reasons why people were so nervous was because prophets didn't care a stitch about what people thought, and they marched to a different drumbeat. Does that describe you? Do you live for an audience of one? Do you care more about what God thinks and less about what others think? Are you swayed by peer pressure? Are you swayed by power and authority? Are you swayed by money and materialism? Or are you swayed by God's spirit within you? A good prophet couldn't be manipulated or bribed. Peer pressure, wealth, power usually had no sway on what they were up to. Prophets could hear things everybody else couldn't hear. See things that everyone else couldn't see. How much so is a Christian like that? Folks without the Spirit of God in them can't see the spiritual dynamics that are going on, can't speak, in, speak truth into life. We can hear what they can't hear. We can see what they can't see, and we can be the light and love of Christ in very powerful ways because we have God's Spirit in us. A prophet lived for an audience of one. We are to live for an audience of one. There's an element, and the second element that we could follow is, for a prophet, wherever God guided, God provided. God said, go and speak this truth to Ahab. He's going to become very angry, but I'll take care of you. I'll, I'll hide you away, and I'll provide bread and meat and water for you every day. This is a biblical principle that has never failed me. Wherever God has guided, God has provided and this is true for his prophets, it's true for his people. If God's calling you to something, to do something, to be something, he will make a way for you, no matter how risky, no matter how countercultural, no matter how bad the odds are stacked up against you. Where God guides, God provides. 
I remember when I was first getting into ministry, I was uh, at seminary. We had just got married, and we got invited to be a part of this, this launch of a, a church plant. And I was working at a very wealthy church in the northwest suburbs of Boston. It, it was, uh, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, it was kind of like the, the, the Christ Church of Oak Brook of greater Boston. There was a lot of executives. There was a, it, it, the offering plate was our, always full. It was a very wealthy, it was a very wealthy church. And um, they had agreed to um, take my internship and extend it to this church plant. And they would keep paying me, even though I wouldn't be working for them. I'd be working for this church, church plant. And uh, we were all excited about that. That great generosity, you know, good kingdom vision there. And so um, as soon as we got married, I, got, I, I settled down in, into the town where we'd be planting. And uh, my first paycheck was supposed to come, and it didn't come. And so I called up the church and uh, I got, oh, there must have been a misunderstanding because we have no plans to pay you. Arr, what am I going to do? I just got married. I'm supposed to provide for my family. Where God guides, God provides. And in just a few short days, three amazing things happened. First, the next day we got this anonymous check for $1,000. Second, our landlord said, since you're helping out with this church plant, your rent is free. Of course, he also was the, the, the point pastor of this church plant, so it's a little. And the third was, really quite out of the blue, we got a, uh, a call from a whole missions representative saying, hey, we want to provide an internship opportunity for you, and we'll pay you to work at this church plant. Where God guides God provides. And I've seen this countless times. And it's not just for Elijah the prophet. It's just not for just someone in ministry. It's for his people. Where God guides, God provides. When you're living for him, living for the audience of one. The third thing and the final thing. Because we have God's presence within us, there's only one response to that. Because we have the living God the spirit of the living God within us, there's only one response, and that's surrender. That was the response of the prophet. He surrendered his priorities. Remember what happened to Jonah? He didn't surrender, and he, he ran in the other direction, and God had a, a, a whale swallow him up and said, no, you're going to surrender. Most of the time, the Old Testament prophet surrendered his agenda, his goals, his plans to God. We are called to do that. Our catechism class this morning looked at uh, Romans 12. Offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice. Surrender. The only response to having the Spirit of God in us is surrendering. When is the last time you told God that you surrender to Him? And we talked about this today in class. And we encouraged each other in the moment our feet hit the ground in the morning. Let's offer up a prayer together and say, God, this is your day. I am alive because of you. I am yours. Help me to follow you. What if we were to say that every day? The first thing on our mind was, God, I am yours. This day is yours. Help me to see and follow you. As we read this week, the work of the prophets... And as we consider this passage tonight, may we live for an audience of one. 
May we trust that wherever God guides, he will provide. And may we surrender ourselves more and more completely to our Heavenly Father who is calling us to join him in his rescue mission.